Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation now. I have Severio Gentile. Uh, he's a PhD, a research assistant professor, all part of the College of Medicine at Chicago Medicine. We're going to talk about uh, cancer and uh, some ion channel activation of biochemical pathways in cancer. And we'll get into what that means shortly. So, Severio, thanks for coming. Well, thanks for the invitation. It's really great to be here. Yeah, tell me about what, what got you interested in cancer uh, years ago. My training was in uh, neuroscience, and um, I can say I actually worked with one of the most probably famous and traditional uh, experimental models, including squids and octopi, and and um, so and then I that was back in Naples when I was in Italy. Then I moved to the NIH and um, to focus a little bit more on this class of proteins called ion channel. And but again, everything was mostly related to how the neurons work, how how they cardiac myocytes work. It's also when I moved to Duke in the cardiology department. And I was interested more and more and more about how these proteins can actually play a role uh, other than just in neurons, other than just in the brain or, or, or the heart. And so I started looking at whether this protein can actually work in, in other contexts, but most importantly, also in other cellular events, rather than just the action potential of the, of the contraction. And one thing I immediately realized by looking in other places at this, uh, the class of channels I was studying at the time, which are the voltage-gated ion channels, they're actually expressed in a variety of cells, including cells that are not necessarily excitable, 
And uh, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes about this particular term, what excitability actually means. Before we do that, the uh, these voltage-gated ion channels, these are what interspersed in the exterior cellular membrane of various cells? Yes, they are mostly on the surface membrane of the cells, but they've also been found in other cellular compartments, including mitochondria. Yeah, they are, they're actually on the surface of the membrane, and they, they can uh, work as a sensor for whatever is going on out there because they can also function as a ligand-gated channel, and they're also modulated by different voltages and so on. So they, they, they play a variety of role according to what cell type you're looking at. And, and, and for that reason, so I was considering probably I should look into not necessarily at a physiological level, but also in a pathological condition. And, uh, and so that's when I started looking at cancer because nobody really looked into it. Very few people have hypothesized the role of these proteins in cancer. And I think the reason is really because normally neurons and cardiac myocytes are considered like cells that do not proliferate, or if they do, it's a very rare event. On the other hand, the cancer cells, that's the only thing they do. They, they proliferate tremendously. And so when I found out that there are many of these channels, voltage-gated channels in cells that proliferate, I was really curious and trying to figure out what they do there, how they do it, why they do it. And later on, actually more recently, we are, are exploiting a little bit the presence of this protein because now we are targeting these proteins with uh, specific drugs, which are already okay. available on the market. Yeah. If I was sitting right next to a cell, but on the outside of the cell, what would I experience in terms of molecular or chemical gradients or electrical fields because of the ion channels opening and closing, opening and closing? Like what would it, uh, if you mapped it out in a 3D way, very close to the cell surface, but extending outward from the cell surface, what would you see? Well, you can see, you can imagine to see, and then sometimes you can measure actually, a variety of changes. Uh, of course, the first one you can think of is the change of ionic gradients, right? Because ion channels are called ion channels because there are, they control the ionic gradients. For ionic gradients, we probably want to focus on the four most famous ions, which are sodium, calcium, chloride, and, uh, and potassium. And so the cells need these changes, the cells that need this, this variation in ionic gradients to uh, start uh, and, and to stop a variety of signaling. And uh, there are, for example, extracellular domains of proteins that are integrated in the membrane that in order to interact with other proteins, they need ions. And, and so when you start changing these gradients it's, uh, outside of the cell, you start also changing some of this function of this of these proteins. We're mostly looking at the inside uh, for a variety of reasons. And the inside of the cells is really, really sensitive at this variation of, of, of gradients. And that for a variety of reasons. One is that many cellular compartments actually uh, rely on, on the, the, the presence of one ion instead of the other. I mean, probably the best example you can want to consider is calcium, right? So Calcium inside the cell is kept under very, very strict control. And it is very well known. If you have a, too much calcium, uh, the cells die. If you have too little calcium, the cells die. If the, if the amplitude of the variation is too large, that creates some, some problem to the cells. If it is too small, the same thing. So calcium is really kept under strict control. But to allow this calcium to change, which is a necessary 
event that has to happen, you need an ion channel. And, and the other wonderful thing about this class of proteins is that they don't really look, they don't really work alone. Uh, whatever one ion channel does is because another ion channel has, has, has done something before. And also other ion channels are activated or inactivated as a consequence of the activity of a specific channel. It's like a concert, basically. They work together. What is the uh, the spacing of ion channels typically on a cell? Like, does it have any bearing? Does it create, you know, let's say, I don't know, a certain calcium ion was released from two adjacent ion channels or a whole bunch of them. Would it create a, I don't know, a segregated area outside the cell or an area that certain chemistries can occur and other areas outside of that, those chemistries wouldn't occur? Well, the, the, this is a very complicated question because it's not easy to measure, but what is becoming important now is to understand how these channels organize on the surface membrane. And so you can have channels of a specific subclass, like for example, uh, calcium channel or potassium channels, they tend to cluster, they tend to form some cluster, but that formation of this cluster is already a response of some other event. And so that, that basically underlines the, the amount of calcium that goes inside the cell in a particular spot of the membrane. And so if this part of the membrane is nearby another organelle, then the, the organelle will respond to the amount of calcium that goes in, which is more or less according to how many channels you have on the surface membrane. The overall though, in, in a physiological condition, cells tend to polarize. The cells, cells tend to organize a set of ion channels in a particular part of the cell and a set of another type of ion channels in a particular other part of the cell. There are in neurons, for example, there are ion channels that are exclusively expressed only in particular part of the neurons and none across the entire axon, for example, or cell of the body. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. If you want to extend this, this concept to cancer cells, we haven't found this, this organization. The expression of the channel is more or less uh, uh, disorganized, but that is because the cancer cell have lost the polarity, have lost the overall structural organization. Yeah, what, um, what is the biogenesis of the ion channels, do you think? The biogenesis, these are, these are uh, proteins that are, uh, they undergo a variety of, of processes, of course, protein synthesis, but also process of protein stability, trafficking, and uh, now microRNA are more and more relevant in, in the post-translational modification. The channels can be phosphorylated, dephosphorylated, myristoylated, and a variety of other transformation. What is really interesting is that all this, this changes don't happen all at once. They are strictly controlled by a variety of signaling that happens before uh, the need of the channel to be phosphorylated or not phosphorylated. We have done a variety of studies in which we show that, for example, the KV11.1 potassium channel, also known as the HERG channel, this channel can be phosphorylated 
by a variety of kinases and dephosphorylated by different phosphatases in a very specific time window. And uh, for example, the very beginning of these studies, we show that uh, hormones, for example, the thyroid hormone can modulate the channel activity with a specific pathway that leads to a phosphorylation. So everything basically is, as I mentioned before, is in a, like in a concert. The ion channel needs to be activated at a specific time window for a specific time and in a specific way, then it will require a very specific signaling that leads to that. In a stretch, in a stretch with the cancer, we found uh, also this to be true in cancer cells. Do you think that um, extracellular vesicles can pack can passage through the ion channels, or it's just only very specific items can go through there? Well, ion channels are are, are very famous to be highly uh, selective, but at the same time, it can also be non-selective, but mostly related to the passage of ions. For example, the potassium channels, the voltage-gated potassium channel is probably extremely selective, meaning that only only potassium can go through that pore formed on the surface membrane. I mean, considering even sodium, which is even smaller than potassium in volume, won't go through a potassium channel. That's because there's a variety of systems inside the pore that organizes the passage of potassium, but not sodium. But then there are the other potassium channels that can be a little bit more spurious that allow also other divalent cation to go through or some other, they, they cross the channel uh, in the opposite direction, an ion goes in, the other ion goes out. That, uh, that happens according to the gradients there are in which the cell is actually is exposed. Normally, the vast majority of uh, potassium channels only allow potassium to leave the cells, but that is because the cell is packed with potassium chloride. There are very few, very, very few exceptions in which we do see potassium entering the cells through a potassium channel because it follows the gradient, but only in an exceptional condition. And um, normally the reestablishment of the intracellular potassium concentration is given by pumps, which is ATP dependent and so on. I don't know, honestly, ion channels that allow complex like, uh, like uh, vesicles, as you said, to entering the cells. Normally this is through some other, some other uh, systems and some other mechanisms. Okay, has anyone been able to do a, a survey of the entire exterior membrane of a given cell to see the population of the various channels? Is that even possible? Yeah, this is, it is possible. It has been done uh, quite well in neurons and also in cardiac myocytes. That, that has a variety of uh, important and relevant outcomes. I am insisting more and more often about neurons and cardiac myocytes. This is because these are the places where this channel has been studied for almost 70 years now. And so a lot is known. The same type of uh, analysis can be done in many other type of cells. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And uh, um, then, of course, it depends what kind of cells you, you, you're looking at. And you can find a variety of population of ion channels. If you're looking at neurons, again, you need something uh, like an action potential to occur. So you need a specific type of ion channel that work relatively fast. But if you look at, at, for example, pancreatic beta cells, you, you also need a sort of action potential for the cells to work properly. But then this action potential is slower. And so therefore, you need another set of ion channels. Many of yep. these ion channels have been characterized, but more and more ion channels are coming out now because, you know, with the strong advancement of uh, uh, technological advancement, better tools are available and, and better way to classify these proteins actually become 
uh, available as well. Yeah, the reason I ask you is I'm getting ready to ask you what's the difference in cancer cells versus healthy cells. But uh, last last question before we get there, what is what is the ballpark number of ion channels in the cells that have been studied? Are there thousands, millions, dozens, and how closely spaced are they? Has anyone looked at that? And do you think that has any importance? There are about 400 genes that encodes for ion channels, probably about 70 or 80 encodes for potassium channels. And then we have also, uh, as I mentioned before, sodium chloride and calcium channels. There are, they can be very different from each other. The most ancestral ions are sodium and calcium. And, uh, and later on, nature found a way to derive from this proteins other channels that allow for the passage of sodium and potassium. No, they're not in the millions for now, at least. And the, again, the organization, the, the expression of the channel really depends on what the cells needs to do. Uh, normally, you know, cells don't spend uh, energy in something that's not used, or they actually, let me use this word, although it's too strong, but rationalize basically the expenditure by having a, the expression of the channel in a particular time window rather than another. So it, the overall population of the channel you can find according to the cell type that you're looking is more or less the same. But then again, the type of channels are more or less the same, but the proteins that are expressed can be different. And that is because the cells needs to fulfill different different aims, different scope. Oh, you, you mentioned proteins being expressed multiple times. Um, are there proteins that modulate the effect of the ion channels themselves? Is that why you, you brought it up? Yes, yes. So there are the ion channel itself is it's functional when it goes to the surface membrane. And then you have to you have to imagine this protein like a very simply, okay, like a hole on the surface membrane. But then it's not just a passive hole. These holes can be triggered to be open or triggered to be closed. So what becomes important is how long it stays open, how fast it takes to open takes to open the channel, and vice versa, how fast is the channel in closing process and so on. All this modulation I told you before, phosphorylation, dephosphorylation, that also happens these parameters. But more recently, there's a bunch of other proteins that have been described to modulate the activity of this channel. This is like a door that opens, and then you have somebody that pushes the door to open stronger or faster and, and, and so on. And these proteins are normally called accessory proteins, which to me sounds more, more like a derogatory way to say uh, you know, like a helper, but these are, they, this can be extremely fundamental for the function of the channel. There is, there is one channel that we've been studying in ovarian cancer, for example, that the channel alone doesn't work unless there is a particular subunit that associates with the channel and becomes the, the reason why the channel opens and closes, which in our case is particularly important because it's also the, the, the protein that binds the ligand that we use to activate the channel. So it is, it is a little bit of a mix of everything. There is the channel that works by itself, the channel that needs help, the channel by, by using uh, accessories of the unit, and everything that can happen to a protein, it will change the channel function. Maybe they should call these proteins butler proteins or doorman proteins, <laughs> you know, for exactly. the channels. Exactly, exactly. So what's observed in, in cancer cells versus healthy cells of the same tissue type? What's, what's different about their ion channels and their proteins that assist the channels? Yeah, so that, that's a kind of interesting to know that certain type of cancers, for example, breast cancers, uh, which are very heterogeneous, but they tend to express ion channels that are not expressed in the tissue from which the tumor has been generated. And uh, uh, there are a variety of potential mechanisms which we haven't looked into yet, 
but we are we are actually trying to see if there is a, a let me say a logic behind if there is a mechanism that is already thrived in other systems in normal condition. So one of the questions is why this cancers like breast cancer or ovarian cancer are we also looking in colon cancer and lung cancer? They they all have the tendency to express these channels which normally are not there. So one question is if is this channel uh, you might heard this this word like an oncogene or an oncosuppressor, right? We don't we don't know the, the short the short answer to the question is whether the, this channel is an oncogene or an oncosuppressor is I don't know. A lot more needs to be done. One thing that we know for sure though is that when the channel once the channel is expressed, and then it definitely participate to the maybe an oncogenic signature or an oncosuppressing signature. So what we try to do is is just to find these channels, use them as a target, but we don't give the, any chance to the channel. We, we, for example, use activators, which are kind of safe drugs, and we push the activity on this channel up to you know unlimited time. Basically, we keep the channel open all the time. And what we see is that the cells definitely change a lot of signaling that leads to, in our case, an, an uh, arrest of, of uh, cell growth or arrest of tumor growth, or even in a more dramatic way, the shrinkage of the tumor, and also inhibition of, of cell mobility, which are extremely important system for uh, cancer cells to, to be cancerous. Is there more inbound versus outbound material on ion channels? I mean, it probably depends on the channel, but you know, for cancer specifically, which ion channels seem to be up or down regulated the most in cancer? There are, there are some ion channels that we find more commonly expressed than others. This one, the KD11.1, seems to be expressed in, in several types of cancers, including breast and uh, ovarian, lung, colon cancer. Uh, for the colon cancer, it's a little bit of an exception because the channel is already in the uh, normal colon cell. Once more, why this channel is particularly relevant, particularly so well expressed, we don't, we don't know yet what's the mechanism behind it's not something simply simple to study because, again, this channel is controlled by a variety of mechanisms. However, again, when the channel is there, uh, the cell uses it and uses it for a variety of, of reasons. I have my own interpretation of the system. When you have channel expressed, what appears to be relevant for the cells is the uh, change of this ionic gradients. Remember I mentioned before about the excitability of the cells. To do a, a parallelism with neurons or cardiac myocytes, we consider these cells excitable because they have action potentials. But if you look at what is an action potential, it's really nothing more than a quick passage of ions from one part, one, one part of the member to the other part of the member. It happens very quickly. So we have this shape of this uh, change of gradients that we call action potential. But what it, it appears to be important is that this change of ionic gradients is, is important for every different type of cells and not just in cells that do not proliferate or just cells that like neurons that conduct uh, electrical messages from one part to the other of the brain or chemical material. So for example, in cancer cells, what we found is that these channels can actually change the current density is called, right? So the amount of ions that go through according to what cell cycle these cancer cells are. So if they are in a, in a particular cell cycle phase, then the ion channel is, is active. But if they are in another cell cycle phase, when the channel is not active anymore or less active. So that implies that this channel plays a major role in making these cells passing from one cell cycle phase to the other. 
and the typical example comes from the exam from the experiments that we run. If you overstimulate this potassium channel, so instead of you know keeping the channel silent when it needs to be silent, but we stimulate the activity for a long time, then the cells, they get stuck in a specific cell cycle phase. They don't move through. And, and similar thing happen if you block the channel. So in other words, what happened is that since ions go through ion channels and the passage of these ions is what underlines the different values of what is called of the membrane potential, which is really the balance of ions between inside and the outside of the cell. And the activity of a specific potassium channel will allow the passage from one cell cycle phase to the other when the channel is active and then, and then it needs to shut down so that the cells can move to the next cell cycle. And that is why when we overstimulate these potassium channels, the cells can move into one cell cycle phase, but then they don't go, they don't go anywhere else. And this is particularly relevant because the arrest of the cell cycle phase in a particular status would not allow the cell to proliferate. And that's why we have the arrest of the, of the tumor growth. In cancer, again, have you looked at the ion channel of just individual cancer cells? Or if you look at tumors, and let's say you look at cells in the periphery of them versus more the center, have you, have you tried to do that and compare what their ion channels look like and see what that tells you? We gave a look to this, try to figure out if uh, this is a very important question that actually underline another uh, important questions, whether that the cancer that is, the cancer cells that are in the periphery behaves the same as the cancer cells that are in the inner core of the tumor. And it is already known that they do not behave in the same way. But when we looked at the presence of ion channels, we found the same channel and we find the same amount of channel. Independently, if there are extracellular, I mean, extracellular, in the external part of the tumor or the internal part. Of and in both type of cells, if we use these activators, you basically see the same effect. I mean, it goes even better if you consider, for example, in the breast cancer, which is again, very heterogeneous. We distinguish mostly in ER positive versus ER negative, but there are a variety of sub uh, type of, of, of this cancer type. And we find the channel expressed all the time and, and everywhere. I mean, everywhere in every different type of cancer cells. That implies that probably the expression of the channel is something really an, an early event probably even before the, the cell become cancer cells. And, uh, uh, and that's probably why the preservation of this channel is relevant in cells that are in the inner part of the tumor on the outer part of the tumor. So it becomes, it becomes a sort of a, a very important protein for the function of the cancer cell. Well, I would think that just that tumors are heterogeneous, um, you know, the ion channel distribution and up and down regulation of them would also be heterogeneous within a tumor. And, you know, yes, somewhat deliberately, somewhat not, because tumors seem to just be messes of, of cells and they're not as organized as normal tissues. But I would think there would be very big differences you'd observe, you know, amongst the various cells. That can also be. But again, the control of these proteins must be kept under very, very strict criteria. Because if you have too much of the channel or too little of the channel, once the gene is expressed, that can be very bad event for the cancer cell. I mean, in the end, a cancer cell just wants to leave, right? And so it will use all the tools and all the tricks to do, to do this, uh, to fulfill this purpose. So ion channels are that kind of proteins that, again, the control is so, is so well uh, tuned that they might actually express the same channel, but at different level, according to what, what is the need of the cell. As I mentioned before, some ion channels can be expressed, highly expressed in a particular cell cycle phase, but not in another. 
So finding out, answering your question becomes more difficult if you look at this way because the heterogeneity, not only of the cell type, but also of the cell function, what these cells are actually doing at that particular time. It is a mass that grows indefinitely, but not, not in a synchronous way. So there are parts of, of the tumor that grows more than other and so and so and so on. Well, you know, what's cool though, is you can look at, you know, the ion channel differences again in a tumor, you could look at them in primary versus metastases. You could look at them after chemo, before chemo. I mean, all the things that go on to perturb cancer, you can look now in the context of these ion channels and say, what are they doing when each of these things happen or in each of these different cancers or in each of these different metastases? And I bet you that would tell you, hopefully, possibly a lot of things. Yeah, no, you're perfectly right. You're perfectly right. What really helped the field is the characterization, the cancer field, I mean, is the characterization of what is called the hallmarks of cancer. That gave us an idea of how to organize our focus because, you know, you know cancer, a cancer cell, it's really not that different from a normal cell. And they use the same tools that a normal cell does, only that a cancer cell will do it at the wrong time, let me say, or in the wrong amplitude. If you, if you express, if a normal cell express, let's say 100 type of ion channel, a cancer cell might express a thousand type of ion channels, you know, all the accessories of uni and so on. But then it, it's this series of random events that will, they will favor one type of cells versus another and so on. So the organization of the hallmarks of cancer gave us an idea uh, where to look and what particular signaling to look. That's something we have explored as well. So if you look at cell proliferation, of course, you want to look at the cell cycle and see how the channel contributes or can be manipulated in order to arrest or in order to favor the cell cycle, uh, uh, passage, passaging of the cell through the cell cycle. But at the same time, these proteins, and not necessarily proteins, but the, uh, the change of ionic gradients are very important for other cellular events. We, I mentioned before about migration, we have wonderful data showing that that uh, ion channel plays a major, major role in cell motility, which is which is the basis probably for, for metastasis, right? But we also know that these proteins play a role in metabolism and so and so on. But these are all things that happen in the cell in a coordinated or uncoordinated way, but they all happen in the cell. So we should probably stop looking at the cells in a compartmentalized way because all these events are happening in the cells and they are all necessary for the cells to leave. And in the case of cancer cells, if we find what are the signaling that become more or less important, then we can manipulate the signal and therefore find a potential therapeutic strategy either to address the, the tumor growth or to kill the cells or to arrest metastasis and so on. Okay. So what are some of your uh, hypotheses going forward? What do you want to test about the ion channels, what do you want to figure out in particular? Yeah, we have started at the beginning just to see what happened. It was just an observation of, of events. And then later we wanted to know how these events were happening. And we looked at the signaling. What are the, the biochemical pathways that are altered when we actually manipulate this ion channel? And we found a variety of interesting things. As I mentioned before, the stimulation of this, of this potassium channel leads to, for example, calcium entry. These are, again, non-excitable cells, which, again, I'm not really fond of this, of this uh, terms anymore. But what happens is that you stimulate the potassium channel, potassium leaves the cells. But remember, potassium is, is a positively charged ion, right? So when, when it leaves the cells, you basically are removing this positive charge. 
leaving the negative charge inside. And this negative uh, charging of the intracellular part of the cell is a driving force for calcium to go in. So we're starting now on understanding what happens when calcium goes inside. And very quickly, we see mitochondria disruption and also activation of, of autophagy, for example. So when you don't have the mitochondria, you don't have ATP. So you have to find a way to make ATP and autophagy is one of them. Why, why this is all important? It's important because now we know that the cells needs autophagy to survive. And since now we, we know that autophagy can be targeted by other drugs, now what we're trying to do is the combinational approach. We basically stimulate the potassium channel to drive the cell in energetic crisis. And then we, after that, we block the autophagy because we know that the autophagy is important for survival. And now we do see that the cells become sensitive to the lethal action of the potassium channel activation. I guess one of the most important points in, in this type of manipulation is that stimulation of potassium channels, at least the way that we found, it gives the cells a stress, a stress that is, uh, it can be lethal, but a lot of ion channels, a lot of cancer cells know very well how to counteract this stress. They know how to compensate this type of stress. And that's probably why they, they, they survive to so many other therapeutic approaches. And so now that we know what are some of these mechanisms that underline the, the overall survival strategy of the cell, we can block them. So we push, we stimulate the potassium channel to push this cancer cell in a corner. And then once the cancer cell in a corner, we hit with a second drug. And now we have the, the killing of the cancer. That's what we are experimenting right now. And we're also lucky because we have a bunch of tools that allow us to do that. Uh, including most recently what's called the tumoroids, which are actually really cool. We can study the, 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 the using tumors from, from humans, actually. Not just what's that. a tumoroid? Well, a tumoroid is, is in a simple, simple way, a tumoroid is a, a piece of tumor, a part of tumor that grows in plastic. And, and now this is really a simple way to say, but... Is it, is it like an organoid? It's an organoid, but it's not artificially... Uh, produced. It's not, uh, it doesn't undergo the, the implantation in mouse yet. Uh, normally, you can get an organoid by having tumor that goes into a mouse, and then you extract this mouse, this tumor in the mouse, but that undergoes to a variety of subcloning because the heterogeneity of the initial tumor from human is normally not conserved when it passes into a mouse. And also, there is the point that mouse, you know, mice that we use for this type of experiment are immunosuppressed, so you don't have the pressure of the immune system. So that creates a, a series of subcloning that reduces the heterogeneity of the initial tumor. So with the tumoroids, what we do, we take from a biopsy, uh, and then we, we, we grow this tumor in a, in a plate with a specific medium, and then we can do pharmacological testing. And there are, of course, advantages and disadvantages of that. You still don't have the pressure of the immune system, but at least you preserve the original heterogeneity of the tumor. And so when you see the effect of the drug, you know that it acts on not only on one type of cancer cells, or maybe yes, but also two other type of cancer cells. And you can characterize. Okay, very interesting. So tumoroids come, will come what, directly from a mouse or directly from a person? Or are, they, comes, are you able to culture in the lab? It comes directly from a person, you know, a person. And then if you want to store it, you basically put it in the refrigerator, but then when you need it, you defrost it and you put it in plastic. Eventually, yeah, you can also uh, put it in a mouse and so you can compare what actually is the effect of the drug when it is 
in, in tumoroids in plastic or tumoroids in a mouse and, and so on and so on. I mean, overall, you really want to consider when you look at the effect of one of these drugs and as many models as possible because each model has its own limit. Sometimes one model it can work very well, but it's not really predictive of what is the effect in humans. So we have to put everything together as many and as much as you can. What do you think um, the next year or so that you're poised to figure out any anything or is this kind of slow incremental going from here? No, we are moving. We are, I have to say, I really would like to brag about this. We're, we're moving at relatively large steps. I mean, we're lucky right now that we have a, a wonderful team that includes also clinicians and not just from UIC, but also from the university where I was before, uh, Loyola. We have uh, just started clinical trial, a small clinical trial. So the, the, the experiment that I, that I was describing you before were mostly related to one of the toughest type of cancer, which is breast cancer. But uh, we got, let's say, very interesting data in ovarian cancer as well. We have identified a potassium channel plays a major, major role in what is called high-grade serious ovarian cancer. This is very aggressive cancer. The overall survival is extremely limited. Probably 75, 80% of the patient dies in the first uh, five years after diagnosis. So it is really, really a bad cancer. So after the we after I thought about, I saw what was going on in breast cancer, I had the question is what if what if I looking for an ion channel in that can be targeted by an FDA approved drugs because these drugs are already out there. And so I found several cancer actually that express potassium channels, that's what we're focusing on, potassium channels that, that are targets already or FDA-approved drug. And uh, so we decided to focus on ovarian cancer because try to contribute as much as possible because these patients really have very, very limited options uh, for therapeutics options. And so we found this channel that is called the KIR 6.2, which again, this is one of the channels that by, by, by himself, it doesn't work. It doesn't do doesn't, it's not, doesn't open. It needs an accessory subunit. The accessory subunit is called SUR2, the type 2, not the type 1, but the type 2. The type 1 is the one expressed in the pancreas, and you don't want to touch the pancreas. The type 2, it seems to be expressed in this particular uh, uh, subset of cancer, and the type 2 associated with the KIR 6.2, and also the SUR2 is the target for minoxidil. And so minoxidil binds the SUR2, and that leads to the opening of the channel. And what we see now is that the cancer cells just die. They don't uh, undergo to those compensatory systems for a variety of reasons. We can spend days in explaining why, but basically the damaged mitochondria, uh, the damage to the mitochondria is too extended. The cells cannot compensate, and so they die. But the important thing is, is this is, again, is an FDA-approved drug. So I don't know if you're familiar. Are you familiar with minoxidil? Yeah, isn't that for baldness? Yeah. Men? Well, minoxidil was initially discovered for its effect as antihypertensive agent. And that's because we have uh, the KIR 6.2 channel in our arteries. And so you stimulate the channel, you relax the muscle, and you drop the blood pressure. But then later it was patented, and that, that, that was patented under the name of, of Lonitan and, and, and some other names in some other part of the world but it's been used vastly by a lot, a lot of people in the world. So we, we, we know that the drug is very safe and uh, a pharmacological profile is very well known. But then later on, minoxidil was also discovered to arrest hair loss. 
and, and so that was patented as a topical agent. But again, still, it stimulated the, the KIR 6.2 channels. And when we used minoxidil in mice, we see that basically the tumor dies. It's not there anymore. So that in collaboration with Dr. Potkul at the University of uh, Loyola University, we started a small clinical trial in which we want to test the effect of minoxidil on uh, ovarian cancer patients. And hopefully everything will be you know, going in the right way. But at the same time, I was looking in breast cancer, if there are other channels that can be targeted by FDA-approved drugs, and surprise, surprise, we did find some. And this is in collaboration with Dr. Kent Hoskins, who's a fantastic a clinician here that helped us to develop this project in, in patients as well. Minoxidil is for hair growth, but how, would, how did anyone even consider this off-target effect of it? Well, the off-target effect of minoxidil would be mostly on blood pressure. So there is absolutely an interesting, an interesting thing. Ovarian cancer patients tend to develop high blood pressure. So having an, an anti-cancer agent at the same time drops the blood pressure, probably have uh, you know, a dual benefit if you want to see it. Uh, other, than, other than that, uh, really minoxidil has no other side effect. There are some, some research in mice that show uh, some alteration of heart function, but that is really because the mouse uh, is a mouse, it's not a human, has never been found an alteration of heart function in, in, in mouse, excuse me, in, in, in humans. So this is probably one of those drugs that have been vastly used uh, by millions in the world with no major side effects. And honestly, we have measured uh, heart function and blood pressure in mice, and we didn't see you know, a, a change that could actually make me thinking that would be very bad in, 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 if used in patients. However, you have to consider this patient when they are exposed to these drugs are under strict control by clinicians that keep all these parameters in check. Well, very good. Severio, we're out of time, but what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to keep up with you? Well, they can, if they are interested in knowing more, they can contact me at the University of Illinois in Chicago. My name is Saverio Gentile. I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine and Division of Hematology and Oncology. My, my email address is probably the easiest way to get in touch with me, and that is S-G-E-N-T-I-L-E at UIC.edu. I guess you can find my name on, on, on Google somewhere somehow, and I would be very happy to discuss even more about this, this data and hear your critiques or, or panel discussion. There's a lot that needs to be done, especially if there are students that are interested in this project, I would be very, very happy to talk to them and see what we can work together and what we can do together. Well, very good. Severo, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.